Englishman in San Diego. At the International Comics Expo, Margate 2018. Um, hi there, my name is Leonard Sultana. I run a website called An Englishman in San Diego, which is about uh, comic conventions, uh, comics and pop culture. Uh, and I've been a comics fan for pretty much as much as I can remember, um, even back to seeing A4 pieces of paper, folding them in half and kind of uh, sketching uh, uh, on the floor of uh, my living room. To the point where um, I did learn about this man very early in my comics reading career. Oh my career. God. Because he has been a fixture in British comics for so long, and he has been uh, setting a standard for so high for so long, and it's a pleasure to talk to him. A round of applause, please, Dan Abnett. Thank you very much. No worries. This is going to be uh, it's going to be an in conversation. Um, I uh, obviously I know uh, Dan's work, but uh, we're not going to get so much into specific titles as such. We're going to leave those to you guys because there's. <laughs> There's quite a few. There There's a quite a bit that yes. you've done. But I think we'll start all the way back, because we were talking earlier um, outside about your own comics history yes. and getting into comics yourself. So I explained that I got in, I think, the old traditional Beano dandy way. Mm -hmm. Where did you come in? I, uh, I, I was obviously, when I was a kid, which is, you know, during the Punic Wars or something, um, I was aware of comics, of course. Uh, my parents were artists. So I was very art-driven. Art as a child, I loved to draw and I loved to write stories. That was my favourite. And read. That was my favourite thing to do. And, um, and I remember moving schools at around the age of eight or nine. And, uh, and there was a kid in my class who was the other kid who was good at art. And he used to draw the most amazingly dynamic images. And I had no idea where he would get this. You know, like, you know, what was fueling this? And uh, we became friends. And uh, he was a keen reader of the... Of the uh, Marvel, British Marvel reprints. So the, uh, back in back in those days, all the American monthly books, which were always one story, one twenty-page story, were shipped over here, broken down into sort of four-page instalments, and published large-format, black and white, in weekly anthologies. So you'd have a comic like Mighty World of Marvel, which would give you four pages of Doctor Strange, four pages of the Hulk, four pages of the Avengers. It was a really weird way of publishing, but it was it was the only access. And I'd never seen these things. Uh, I was vaguely aware of some of the characters, but I'd never really seen these. And uh, it, it, it is, I, to me, it's one of those kind of crucial moments of, of, of my entire existence, was that uh, uh, I was at his house, we were, and he, he had a room full of his comics. And he, his, his mother said, your room is a mess. You need to get rid of some of these comics. You've got, you haven't got enough room to store them all. And he goes, well, what am I going to do with them? And she said the paper was, why don't you give some of them to Dan? So I went home that day with this pile of, of, of British... So the traditional way of, of mums giving comics away, away, actually, away yes, look, that actually happened, but they gave them to you. you. Yeah, what a monster they created. That was, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so I took these home, and, and they, were, they, were, they were not in sequence in any way, shape or form. So if I was lucky, I had two in a row. So I didn't have, I didn't have the whole of any story. There were beginnings, middles and endings. And I don't... This is, this is grown-up me in hindsight looking back on that and assuming that actually, because they were my only comics, I read them again and again and again. And at some point, I think my mind started to imagine what the rest of the stories must be. And I think I started to tell those stories to myself. And maybe that's where the kind of story to comic storytelling thing came. Was, um, it, was it the American, like, say, the, the, the Marvel reprint stuff? Because there's a definite... There's a, two different tones there from the, the English... And the, the valiant and the eagle yes, and that kind yeah, yeah. of very kind of wordy big yes. boxes full of text, and then you've got the Marvel. My, I think it was the it was the art of the Marvel, the, the superhero. I'd never really seen superheroes before. I think I'd read things like uh, Hotspur and Battle probably by that point. Uh, and once I discovered comics, of course, I loved them. So I started buying and reading them when I could, um, uh, particularly 2008, from a very early stage. So so, so my, my, my 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 reading was between. Old school American comics and uh, this the sort of this bizarre satirical 2080 stuff. It, incidentally, though, the, 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 that stack of comics, which was already tattered when it was given to me when I was nine, I, I found about a year ago. I was sorting through my the, the room where I store my file copies and things, and I found it at the bottom of the box, and it's still it's even more tattered now. 
And I um, and it was like the Holy Grail. There are better and more deluxe and beautiful versions, including the original American versions of these comics. But these were the actual artifacts that inspired it. And I put them in a file box and marked them the source. And it sits on my in a totemistic way. It sits in my in my office as a sort of this is this is where it all started in a in a in a weird way. I, like I say, I find it interesting that you came in via the American comics because they are so yeah. visually. But it's interesting that you then also mentioned 2008 because they are very wordy. And I was trying to work out where you actually got the the sense of knowing that there was somebody actually writing this stuff down. It wasn't just being dreamt up somewhere. No, there was um, an actual brain behind it. I, I, Which was I, the kind of book I, that did that? I, I don't know if it was a specific book, but I think it was the Marvel comics because they had often credits. I know 2008 did, but a lot of British comics back then didn't. Uh, and to see the credits, and it said writer, and usually said writer, penciler, inker, letterer. And it was like, wow, that's a team, that's a team, and they're doing very specific things. I suddenly realised that there was this, this, this idea of people... And you were still too young to actually go to the next level of, OK, you can get paid doing this. Yes. No, and, that, and I have to say that is the great irony of it, because, because I, I, used to, I used to, as a kid and as a young teenager, uh, I would, I'd either be reading, and, reading comics or reading books, which I've always done voraciously, or playing role-playing games, which I wonder whether that's another place where my storytelling came from. Uh, or I would be writing and drawing my own comics. That's what I did. I, I had boxes at home of comics that, that I drew when I was, like, age 10 or whatever. They're shit, but um, and um, uh, and I sort of wanted it. And by the time I was in my, I guess, approaching O levels and stuff like that, um, I thought I would be an artist. I thought I would go to art college, um, and I could have done. And and that was a perfectly valid choice for me to make. But I had a brilliant English teacher at school who said, "You know, you're sort of much better at English, comparatively speaking, than you are at art. You might want to consider doing that at university." And that was the sort of point at which I realised I couldn't draw my comics fast enough to tell the stories I wanted to write. And that sort of was the point where, by default, I became a writer, not because I chose to be, but because it, it meant it, I just started concentrating on the get, bit I like, yeah. You could get the concepts out faster. I could get the concepts out faster. And there was a point, actually, before I stopped drawing comics, where I would, I would just, I would sort of randomly draw what I, you know, sort of issue 67 of a comic that I hadn't drawn the previous 66 issues of, simply because... It was like I can dip into here to a bit of the story that I think is going to be really, and it's like a weird artifice for a kid to invent. But I did, I would do that. I would do that regularly. Uh, when it came to writing, then uh, were you wanting to write comics, or was prose uh, kind of, or was it always comics? No, it was a bit of everything. I used yeah. to write short stories. Like there's, there's at least, God help me, several novels that I wrote when I was a teenager that, that, that will never see the light of day. But I writing long form. And I ended up writing comics because I love comics, but also because it was the first opportunity I got to literally be paid, to be commissioned and paid for that. I, I, I went to university on my English teacher's advice, uh, had a brilliant time there, and then went, what do I, what do, I do with an English degree? And a I'd done some cartooning, rather than comic book work, for the, for the college magazine. And somebody said, knowing my love of comics, they said, you should get a job in comics. And even at that point, which was, I was, what, 20, 21 years old, it was a quick, what, do, does that happen? Can you do that? Is there a comics industry? How does that work? So I wrote a, a letter to uh, Marvel UK. Thankfully back then there was. There was. There was. <laughs> I wrote a letter to Marvel UK in London, which was the, 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 the reprint branch, although by that stage they were beginning to originate with uh, licensed characters like Transformers, Simon Furman's work on Transformers and, uh, and uh, um, uh, Thundercats and uh, soon-to-be Ghostbusters. And I wrote them a letter saying that I wanted a job in comics. Completely vague. I didn't know what job in comics I was because I didn't know what the jobs were called, but yes, please. And they, said, they wrote back and said, uh, well, yeah, why don't you come in and have a chat with us? And I went, fantastic. So I went up to, it was in Bayswater then, I went up to Bayswater. And what I didn't know was that Marvel at that point was ad advertising for editorial trainees in The Guardian. And the national press, you just, you and they just thought to walk in on they it. thought I was applying for a job, having seen the advert. So I arrived, and I was one of a number of people waiting for their interview that day. And I went, oh, not what I expected. So I, I went, oh, I'm here now, and I had the interview, and I got one of the slots, and I started working there. And it's lovely today, I have to say, this 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 all to go out there and see Simon Furman and Steve White, who were fellow editors, and and people like Kev Hopgood and Martin Griffiths and Phil Elliott, who were all regular. People in the it's office. A, it's a hell of a reunion. It's a hell of a reunion out there. And I, my first job was working as Richard Starkings' uh, assistant on Real Ghostbusters. So Phil Elliott was drawing for me. Um, and and the, let's face it, the pay wasn't great. 
I did, it was a wonderful experience as I learned how comics work from the inside in terms of the literal mechanics of putting a comic together and what was the storytelling, you know, how to be an editor. And one of the things that Marvel used to, used to encourage you to do, and they said they were encouraging you to do it because it gave an editor a better grasp of how to edit a story if they had written one, but it was also a subtle way of allowing you to, to just earn a little bit more than the pittance they were paying you by doing freelance. But they encouraged us all to write some stories. So I, wrote, I think the first thing I did was an was a action force story on spec. And it came back from Richard Stuckey's covered in red ink. And it's like, you know, homework, do again. But it wasn't. He was saying, no, we're buying it from you. It's great. But here are things to bear in mind. So I learned by writing. And I wrote a lot of Ghostbusters. And occasionally when Simon would let me add Transformers and Thundercats and Care Bears and, and Sylvanian Families and Thomas the Tank Engine and Go Galaxy Rangers, whatever I could do. Uh, sometimes text stories for the issues, sometimes strip stories for the issues. Learning. And it was a really useful learning experience because it was all on licensed characters. You had to get it right. There was no grey area. There was no ifs or buts. There wasn't like, oh, here's a new take on Batman. There was none of that. It was like, it's either Thundercats or it's rejected. And so you learned incredibly fast. So I sort of learned how to write in a, in a small target area, and that's a very valuable experience. It sounds like a, a contrast to uh, Fleetway and 2000 yes. AD at, at that point because, you hit, I mean, the only comparison there is the money was crap. Uh, yes. so I think for comics across the board, the money was crap. Yeah. That's the, the standard. But it seemed like with, when you read and talk to people who were in the 2080 offices, they were almost kind of like separated away from each other. If they talked to, to each other, it was almost against the editor's wishes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there was a very combative element in the 2080 offices. It sounds like in Marvel, it wasn't like that. It no, sounds they, more like I, a I collaborative. They were. They were Massive friendly rivalries, always of course, and people were, were, could be very territorial about the particular things they worked on. But there was an enormous sort of mass group energy of people working together and, and, and recommending artists or trading artists or, or helping each other. Or, you know, and, that, and, and a lot of them, when we did start to originate things like Likes of Head Dragon and, and, and things like that, there were collaborative efforts on those things. And it was, there was, it was, there was a, a sense of energy, which was great. I think, uh, I think as, as Fleetway as it was then, on 2018 and stuff like that, um, because those things, those, all those strips have been created by the people who were writing them, there was a much greater sense of, of oh, I'm you know, cr cr creating something, but also protecting my own thing, and you can't yeah. go anywhere near it. Um, and it was, it's weird, you talk, talk about the courses in the comics, you said, you know, how do you start into comics? A lot of people start with something like the Beano, and I actually just started with American comics. That and Trigon Empire and Look and Learn. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. And then, uh, and then uh, my, also my, the, my nerd radar just no nerd right. radar. Uh, and then the the, um, the the also the root of both writers and artists the UK late eighties, mid to late eighties, tended to be they'd work for two thousand AD. That's where they would they would prove themselves, and then they would go to usually Vertigo, or they go to the American publishers, and that was the route they went. They went. They went through thing. Or they, I, yeah, well, they came to. The, that's the. That there, there was a headhunting thing. That's the thing. It was a headhunting thing at Fleetway, and or two thousand AD with Marvel UK. Was it almost felt like the, a, a kind of natural progression to the American? No, Marvel? no, it wasn't. Most most of the freelancers who worked at Marvel UK just wanted to get a job in sort of slightly more serious comics than they were doing at Marvel UK, just because of what was a, the opportunities were there. So they would go anywhere, and it was usually they would also then try and get proper work at 2018 in order to have a portfolio they could show to American editors because that was the way to do it. And I and I am still, I think to this day, something of a freak in as much as I worked, did loads of work for Marvel UK on licensed products and then things like Pendragon and Deathset. And then, because I worked my way up through that, got a, ended up writing The Punisher for Marvel US as my first American thing. So I worked for Marvel US and then DC later on in the, in the 90s before I ever came back round and, and by that stage approached 2018 and went, I'd love to write for 2018, who I've now written for for over 20 years. And it was like brilliant, brilliant thing to do. And I love writing for 2008. It's fantastic. I've created a lot of strips for them. I've written for I've written for 2008 for longer than it was being published before I got there. If you see what I mean. But no one goes that way round. It was like to end to end up at 2008 was a really, really bizarre thing to do. And it, well, I never ever used it as a as a calling card or as a, a, a testing ground. It was something I went to because I wanted to write that sort of thing, having sort of cut my teeth doing American comics. Fair enough. Let's get to kind of like the nuts and bolts of your process in terms of writing then. Oh, um, I know, sorry, we're, we're going to get into uh, that kind of thing. I um, see comedy as a kind yeah, of... Yeah, let's yeah. break things down and uh, let's uh, demystify it all. Um, what is your process when it comes to uh, scripting? 
I mean, actually, first things first, I mean, what was the first comic script you read where you actually kind of like learnt the language? Because you really, it was, you speak to enough comic creators and they kind of always have one touchstone, one script they kind yeah, of... Yeah, not so much me, it was simply the, it was the formatting of, of Marvel UK comics, which I used as, you know, I look at... It, it was to, just a, temp, a, it was a just, template. It, it was the template, or seeing the scripts coming in on Ghostbusters and Care Bears and going, oh, that's what a script looks like, okay, I can understand that. And, and, and everybody's evolves in a slightly personal way. These days I work in the screenwriting software, Final Draft, and I use a customised version of a screenplay so I can send a dialogue and it makes the reading experience and also then the lettering and drawing experience much better because you, you isolate one element from, from another. I simply number panels. But, uh, but I used to do all that by hand, you know, before I had software that would do that. Um, but my In terms of structure, terms is it, of, is it um, post-it notes or...? It is post-it notes. I carry notes. I won't drag it out of my bag, but I carry notebooks wherever I go. I wrote notes. sometimes write quite complex plotting but usually it's a matter of post-it notes with story elements on that I can literally move around on my desk until I've got them in the order I want, and then slowly pull, tear them up and throw them away as I get to the points that I do it. But it's also, every, everybody has a different way of working. As you know, I write comics, but even within that bra broad bracket of comics, I write American comics, I write you know, Warhammer comics, I write uh, 2000 AD, and you know, there's, a, there's a range within that. I also write novels. For Warhammer particularly, but for Doctor Who and all sorts of other things like that. I also write computer games, and I occasionally write other things. So one of the reasons that I'm as prolific as I am, but also one of the reasons that I try and maintain the quality of what I do, is that I move between those things at a fairly rapid point. I never, obviously I stay on something to get it done and get it onto deadline, but I never focus on something to such an extent that I end up being sick of it, and blocking myself. So literally, my working day, up, up early in the morning, I might write the first, the next two chapters of whatever novel I'm writing, stop for lunch, and then switch to comics. That was going to be my next question. Uh, is it a very, I mean, a lot of people get out or go into comics because they think it's not a, a, the regimented nine to five job. And then you find a number of creators that actually have a, the shed down the bottom of the garden, that's the office, and they go yeah. in at nine and finish at five. Yeah. Is that I something did, you I do, did, and do you find that beneficial? I think it's absolutely... Well, I, th I think if you... Whilst there is an enormous amount of fun in the comics industry and in publishing and in any other artistic in endeavour, and, it's, and what, when you do that sort of thing, it's, you've got to be flexible enough to actually suit your own creative rhythms. So there's no point saying, well, you work nine to five. It's like, well, I don't work... I don't work. When I, okay, when I first went freelance, I had, I had, had a day job at Marvel... Uh, so the only time I got to write was evenings and weekends. So I got used to writing at evenings and weekends. Then I quit my day job and I could write full time. And I suddenly discovered that I'd sit around all day and not get anything done. So come six o'clock, I go, oh, I suddenly I've got an idea. And, I, and, I, and it took me about a year to break the pattern of only writing week, evenings and weekends, even though I had my days free. And I used to be a terrible night owl. And actually, what was a huge revelation to me, about nine years ago, I had a series of seizures. Very exciting. <laughs> Everybody was talking about it, um, and and it was a weird, weird, weird time for me. And they and they they didn't know what it was, and, and they they uh, they checked me out. And for for a couple of months there, there was a danger that it was going to be something like a brain tumor, and it was something horrible and terminal. Uh, and they eventually ran tests on me, and they said, uh, Mr. Abner, it, it is just epilepsy. You've had epilepsy all your life, but you've only ever had it in your sleep before, so you didn't know you had epilepsy, but you have epilepsy. And take these tablets, and you know, two times a day, and you'll be fine. But try not to get overtired or stress. I went, I work in the comics industry, but okay. Um, <laughs> but that's a very funny thing. Uh, um, so I deliberately tried to control the tiredness thing. And I said, I've got to stop working as a night owl. So I, I would stay up at night until the strip was finished. So just in, purely medicinally, I tried to get, start to try and get an early night and then work a reasonable day and never get overtired which I did for a short while whilst I was coping with the change, in, which is now completely stable, it's fine. Fair enough. But having started doing that, I went, wait a minute, I'm not, so I, was, I suddenly started waking up in the mornings going, six o'clock in the morning, sometimes five o'clock in the morning, going, I feel great. I've had a proper night's sleep, God, I want to work now. And I would have, and so my, my working day suddenly ran like that. I discovered that the night owl thing was simply artificially imposed on me because of the opportunities earlier in my career for when I could have written. And what naturally, when I let my body reset, the, the creativity was the start of the day. So my, my working day tends to start about six or seven in the morning. I'll work through to lunchtime and I'll do an afternoon slot. And then five or six o'clock at night, I'll stop for the day. It doesn't matter if the job's not finished. I'm done for the day. I've put my hours in. I leave the office, which is my, a room at the front of our house, 
close the door on it. I'll be back again tomorrow. And, and that way, and, 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 and the other thing I've broken was that idea of, oh, I'll just keep going until I finish this bit or this script, because I'll just get it done. Actually, it's great to leave something dangling, because if you, if you finish it off, when you've got to come back the following morning, you've got to start again. It's like getting a cold motor to turn over. You're going, right, I was finished today. Oh, what am I going to do now? How am I going to get this moving? Whereas if you left it in the middle of, you know, and, and Superman turns around to punch Lex Luthor, dot, 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 you come back and you go, oh, I know exactly where I've got to get. He's punching him now. And immediately it eases you in because you, you've sort of left it off. It's like a relay race hanging, waiting to yeah. be taken up again. And it, and it makes you more efficient. So I work efficiently. And to mention, to go back to what we were saying when you asked the question, sorry, but um, <laughs> to working in a creative industry, people don't think, as a child, I didn't necessarily think working in comics was a proper job. And today you meet people who go, well, comics. They're fun, but it's not a proper job. They have no idea of the professionalism in that. So if you are a comic writer or an artist, and you're entirely entitled to do this, but if you don't treat it as a proper job, you go, oh, I'll get the pages done Sunday afternoon, well, I'm just, but I'm really not going to... It's like, well, you're not really respecting yourself as a creator. Right. If you get up and you work a five or six day week and you put the hours in, and whatever those hours are, but you've got your routines and you know what needs to be done and you're efficient about it, then it's as professional as writing or doing any other job. Well, that kind of, I actually skipped a question because there was a question I was going to ask a little bit earlier on. Uh, it's something that I was, when I've spoken to enough creatives, even those who are very much known now still have a little bit of imposter, pro, um, imposter yeah. complex in their the back of their head. Um, what was the first piece of work that you would say you did where you actually felt, okay, I'm, I'm doing this now, this is... I, I've done yeah, that. I know what you mean. I know yeah. what you mean. Um, I, I, again, it's a less interesting answer. I don't think there was a specific piece, but once I was starting to write and being paid to write, so probably that action force story, hmm. I went, well, it might not be Proust, but I'm being paid to write, and therefore I am a professional, and then I will only I will learn and I will do my 10,000 hours of learning. And I think everyone... Not only everyone in the comics industry always has that imposter syndrome. I think you could go up to, I don't know, George Clooney or, or, or somebody and go, yeah, well, deep down inside, I'm just, I'm just afraid that some, someday somebody's going to find out that I'm just pretending. Yeah. Everyone's got that. And it, it, it seems to be a particular blight of comic artists, I think, because they spend so long focusing on the art, whereas writers are moving around like butterflies doing, you know, do you know what I mean? But it, there is always that. There are moments when you go... I'm just, I'm just, I'm fully myself. Come to that, and and you just go away and you take another run at it. When people describe you, it usually comes with the hyphenate, New York Times bestseller, and also award winning. Yes. When you first got those accolades, were you still kind of having that impossible process? I. And did that? Did those winning those awards help? Yes, it doesn't. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't hurt. It's it hurts with something. Page uh, rate. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. But it's more the the, um, the new. I, I think I've had. I think it's either seven or eight New York Times bestsellers, and this is the Warhammer novels. Mm-hmm. Although one of them was a comic collection as well. There was a comic collection that did that, um, and I, and it was. I. I it, it, there was a sense of. Um, uh, of, of recognition, you go. There's, you know, you can't argue with that. In order to achieve that, I have sold the books to to X number of people, and therefore that means that I must. It's not just like I'm being paid for this job, yeah. but there is an audience at the other end of it. So there is that. But it was also just sheer astonishment. I'm a New York Times bestseller. What are you kidding me? The no, the moments that really matter are actually conventions and uh, meeting people who who either say I like, you know, the obvious things. I like your work. Or they say, uh, I've liked your work for a long time. Or they reach into their bags and they produce stuff that you wrote 25 or 30 years ago. And you go, oh my God, how did you remember that? But weirdly, and I'm not suggesting that I want more of this, but it is the moments when somebody comes up and goes, I hate what you did with that character. And then we'll explain in detail why it was wrong. And I go, wow, you read that. You're not just saying, I like your Aquaman work because you know I write Aquaman. You read that and you have had a fundamental response to it and I, I have actually I was telling I have told this story earlier today so I apologise but obviously not on stage with a microphone in my hand but, but there have been occasions where I have been physically threatened by readers one particular occasion was to do with a Warhammer book where I, I, I've been writing my Gorgs Ghost series for Warhammer it was about four books four or five books into what is now a 14 book series 
And I had taken the very malicious decision that I now have a reputation in Warhammer circles that's like George R. R. Martin for killing characters off willy-nilly. Um, but anyway, I decided to kill a major character off to prove that it was war and, and people, you know, it wasn't all sweetness and light. And, and at the very next game stay, which is at 10,000 people in the National Indoor Arena in Birmingham, and they have security guards present simply to, to control the flow of the traffic. It's not, it's not because there's, you know, it's going to be whatever, but... So I had two security guards stationed on my table, and I had a queue that was going back so far that the fire marshal said it was blocking the fire exits. Anyway, and the people were coming up, and they were all very excited. They love, you know, love your work, blah, blah, blah. All the lovely things that people say, which, is, which may, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how many times you get them, they're lovely. Can you sum up, book? Is that character really dead? I can't believe what you did. Oh, that was so shocking. And I'm going, oh, God, you, you know, that mattered to you. And, and it went down like this for about 10, 15 minutes, and then the guy arrived at the table. And he, I could see he was physically shy. He was trembling. And I thought, this is, that's odd. What's this? And he said, uh, he didn't even have a book to sign. And he looked at me, no smile whatsoever. He fixed me with his glare. And he said, is that character really dead? Infamously, a character with brains. And is that character really dead? And I went, well, have you read the book? And he went, back. and I said, did you read it? And he went, yes, I did. And I said, well, what do you think? Do you think he's dead? And I went, yes, I think he is. You've killed him. And I went, yes, I did. And at that point he started to lunge. And at that point, the security guards came in from either side, and it was all slow motion to me, and they tackled him before he could reach me. He was so incensed that I had killed his character that he wanted to physically hurt me. Now, you might say that's a traumatic experience, and of course it was, but at the same time, I went, that's probably the greatest compliment I've ever been paid. Because wow. it mattered to that guy so much that he was so convinced by that character and he, that he cared about it so much. And that, and whenever, and it's still, tw 12, 13 years on, people go, why did you kill Bragg? And I go, did you care? And they go, yes. And I go, that's why I killed him. Because, because that's what you do. If you, can, if you can capture someone's imagination and connect them to a character that strongly, that they f viscerally feel stuff. I regularly, sorry, I'm digressing, no, 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 no. but I, I, get, I get sent, the, the Warhammer books particularly, for some really weird reason, although they are shooty death kill in space, science, military science fiction, they are read by a lot of people in the armed forces. I think it's because it represents something they identify with, uh, but yet it is safe. It's not, it's not real world, so it's quite safe to read it. So Ender's, I, it's Ender's game. It, it, yes, absolutely. And, and, and I, so I get, I get the, again, a huge compliment, are you a veteran? And I go, well, I'm not. And they go, yeah, but you, and I say, I do a lot of research, and I ask a lot of people, now I'm meeting people like the people who get these books signed, they give me insight, but they, the, apparently the portrayal of the characters is authentic enough to make feel, people feel they recognise the sort of soldier's life, which is a huge compliment. And then I get letters or emails or whatever from people saying, yeah, I was, I was reading your book Under Fire in Iraq, or it was the first books out of the, bo of the, the box of the PX in Afghanistan. And then there were, I was at a Canadian convention where the four guys came up to me and they said, um, we just wanted to tell you the story, they were Canadians, and they said we were the crew of a Canadian leopard tank in Af Afghanistan. And we were under fire, so we had to go hull down for 24 hours under fire, artillery fire. And the, there were four of us in the tank, and the commander of the tank had a copy of one of your Gaunt's ghost books. And that was the only book we had in the thing. And he went, well, I'm reading it because I'm the commander and it's mine. <laughs> so they all sat there in silence, and he got a quarter of the way through this book, and he tore the front quarter off and handed it to the gunner. So he could carry on reading, and the gunner could read the first quarter. And by the end of it, the book was in four parts, and they were passing it around because they were all the whole crew was reading it. And they brought me the... Canadian flag off the, the, tele, the, the, radio, the, the radio aerial from the back of the tank, covered in the dust of Afghanistan, saying thank you for entertaining us for that horrible 24-hour period. And I was speechless at that point, absolutely speechless. And then, I'm and then not people, entirely surprised. And then, and then people will say things like they say, I read your latest Gorn's Ghost novel, and I was so shocked by what you did, I tore it in half, or on one occasion somebody said that, but it was another occasion somebody said I threw it across the room and then took it into the garden and set fire to it. <laughs> And you go, and they're, but they're, they're telling you this, standing at your table with a copy in their hand. <laughs> and I went, but you didn't like it. And I went, no, I just had a violent reaction to it. And I said, what's this? And they went, that's the copy I went out and bought to replace the one I burned so that you could sign it. I, I, my work here is done. Do you know what I mean? That's, it's, it's not so much that. It's like, I, I don't need validation beyond yeah. the idea that somebody feels that strongly about it, that it makes them physically hurl the book away from themselves in a, in a kind of weirdly good way. That's fantastic. Um, I'm going to come at a topic now um, which is slightly in a two-part way. It's a little bit convoluted. Go on. But I think what I'll do is, I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of frame it in my head first, and I'm going to do this by asking some questions from you guys. If there's any questions that you want to put 
to Dan Abner if you'd like to raise your hands if there are any questions uh, while I think this in my head. Oh, yes. What happened to me, between me and Andy Lanning, uh, Andy and I were, uh, our names appeared on a lot of books for a yeah. long time. Um, uh, the, the, the simple answer to that, really, is after a ridiculously long time of 20 plus years, during which we had a lot of fun writing stuff together, is that we simply ran out of steam to do that. It actually was more complicated writing things together than it was writing thing, me writing things on my own. And the simple reason for this, and this is not me in any way sort of bad-mouthing it, Andy's not a writer, he, he's an artist, he was never a writer, so it was all about us combining to, to, to brainstorm ideas. And after a while, um, but we shared the credit, because it was the easiest way of representing what we did together. Um, and after a while there came a sense of, is, oh, I, Andy was clearly benefiting from that experience because obviously he was getting a reputation as a writer. And, and, but I always write, Guardians of the Galaxy, for instance, I wrote all of that. Sometimes I wrote issue, whole issues without consultation to him because we were just, it was a project we were doing together. And after a while, there, there simply came a point where I said, why, why am I doing this particularly anymore? Why, why would, I, would I do that? Because I wasn't really, as it were, getting anything back. And... Rather than just go, that's it, we're stopping, I did really try for a period of about two years to get the way we worked together to change where we would, we would, the contributions would be slightly more significant and more balanced. And, and it just didn't happen. And unfortunately, at the end, it became quite vitriolic and I went, I just, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a surprisingly long phase of, phase of the life. And, and it produced some good, good things. But it sometimes irks me when I look at stuff and I think, oh yeah, and they go, that, that was co-written. I'm going, kind of not, kind of not. It's just that we, early on we decided on a, a very simple way of representing a working relationship that was a shorthand for something far more complicated. But obviously to the rest of the world that, that doesn't, is not representative. What, the where I wanted to go with my question is regarding your work in America yeah. and regarding your work here in the UK. Because we were talking outside about the current landscape of British comics, yes. which is stagnant, I think it's safe to say. The indie press and, uh, sm and small creator press is very powerful, and then there's 2000 AD, which kind of like is the, the big granddaddy here in the UK, mm. and you are, and you continue to work for 2000 AD, but then you have all the American and the DC titles that you do. Where does the creative um, satisfaction come from in terms of the, the American versus the UK and giving back to the UK market? The, it, I find it, it, if there is a creative satisfaction writing anything, whenever, whenever I say yes to whatever I'm writing, I do the best possible job on it I can, uh, no matter what it is. I'll try and make sure I do the best possible job. And it, there is an enormous creative satisfaction from working like a, a company like Marvel or at the moment DC, taking legacy characters that have been around 70 plus years and trying to do, the, do great stories with them, but also to trying to, um, to add something to that legacy. What can I do with, I don't know, Aquaman or the Titans or whatever, that has not been done before or not been done recently or not been done in this way? So that, that's great. And there's, so there's a huge satisfaction. There's a huge satisfaction about working in one of the great, world's great shared universes as well. Uh, DC Universe or the Marvel Universe is, is, is tremendously, tremendously good. And, and in terms of Marvel, of course, I've had fast payback on that by contributing things like, like Guardians of the Galaxy, which are now part of not only the Marvel Universe, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and are, thanks to the movies, not to me, but thanks to the movies, are globally known. I mean, when I, in 2007, when I started writing Guardians of the Galaxy, I think I was one of about seven people in the world who knew who Rocket Raccoon was, mm -hmm. because it was this, this, this slightly unsuccessful Bill Nantlow, Keith Giffen thing, drawn, I think, by Mike McNuller in the, in the very early, very first one. The first Sword ones. Star, yeah, and, and it hadn't really worked. And I'd, I'd, I'd literally rifled through uh, Marvel's uh, toy box of forgotten characters and gone, Star-Lord, I loved him. That does seem to be the way that a lot of British yeah. creators go in. Yeah, we, they go, find these we find the bits that are forgotten, yeah. And I said, can I, have, can I use this? And they went, do what you like, because we don't care. And I wrote Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy, could do anything I wanted with them. And, uh, and, and, then, with it, and, then, and then to my uh, literally jaw-dropping shock, they said, they're going to make it into the movie. Even the editors of Marvel couldn't believe that it was going to be the next movie. It's like, well, not a tentpole marquee name 
thing and they go but it opens up space and we, we haven't got the rights to the silver surface so we're going to do this and it's going to be great and it's going to be based on your version of the Guardians which was this strange conglomeration where characters that were interesting but previously unsuccessful like Rocket and Ro Rocket Raccoon by saying well Rocket and Groot go together as a kind of double act and suddenly they were they were getting there's a great resonance by putting them together and that's what they picked up on the, the sort of the craziness of the stories and then and then going from 2007 where like six people in the world have heard of rocket raccoon to to sort of 2010 where you walk down the street and everyone's got a rocket raccoon lunchbox or a backpack and you're going wow that's an extraordinary experience to see that and and, and again you talk about validation and and, and sort of in, indirect um, satisfaction from some little thing that you did that's it. That, that, the credit for that is entirely James Gunn for making two great movies. But but even so, it was a it was a really weird experience. Which is where this led into it, because Guardians of the Galaxy is one of the, in fact, it's the only property I can think of where it's translated to a cinematic adaptation, and sales have translated back to the comic. Yeah. It's. I can't think of any other because at the moment there is a big discussion about this about um, online in comics, uh, Twitter, and comics, social media about how the movies aren't then translating the sales back to the comics. Yeah, but but I think there there is a, I, I think the reason for that is that Guardians of the Galaxy never sold particularly well in the first place. So <laughs> simply more people are buying it now because they've heard of it. Whereas things like Superman and the only way was up. Yeah, yeah. Whereas whereas you know Captain America, people were already reading Captain America, so it wasn't necessarily going to discuss. But there but there is a false assumption in that 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 a movie of anything is going to influence the sales of the source material. Now, it often happens, and you, logically you'd expect that to happen, but there is sort of no necessarily a driver that says, because I, you know, I like to go to the movies at the weekends with my kids, let's say, hypothetical, I'm a hypothetical person. Oh, look, Thor, that looks exciting. I've gone to see it. Yeah, that was a blast, and it's comic, so it's sort of cool, because it's got that kind of cool thing. It's got that Comic-Con thing that we all think about. Doesn't mean the next day I'm going to go and buy a copy of Thor, because that does not replicate the experience that I have watching the movie. Now, it, it, it increases the quality of those brands globally in terms of people who are already comic fans, and they're going, I am proud of Thor, I've always read it, oh, there's a movie, that's great, now I'll go and read some more Thor. And maybe it slightly increases it, but there's absolutely no definitive logic that says it must boost the sales of the, of the paper copies. That we all know the comics industry in every aspect is sort of struggling because fewer people buy that sort of thing full stop. You know, they're either buying them digitally or they're not reading comics. It, it's, it's, it's a beautiful but slightly outmoded um, genre when you can, you can, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this with inverted commas around yeah. it, but you can get the same sorts of things better from a movie or a video game. Video games actually more than movies because they are, start, they are supplying that sort of SF genre related fun in a way that is incredibly immediate and also interactive with the player. If you can play Destiny, why would you go and read a 20 page piece of paper that's got pictures on it and you've got to read the words? Now, I and I'm sure you worship comics as a genuine art form then again, I write computer games and I think they're a burgeoning art form and they're like Hollywood in the 30s. But there is, I think there is a false assumption to say, why, has not, why have not the Marvel movies increased sales? Why have they not given birth, rebirth to the, to the comics industry? It's like, why would they ever? And was that ever the obligation of... The obligation of making those movies was to make very successful movies, which has happened. And the comics... Were, and I think there is a great deal more non-financial reciprocity between the films and the things because I think people like me and, and all the stuff at Marvel and the people who work on DC, they're being recognised as people who produce ideas through the medium of comics, working within the framework, the often tight framework of Marvel and the universe, the DC universe, writing to order, writing licensed characters, producing great stories that can be turned into those things. My name's in the credits of those films and the Avengers and Thor. Do you know what? And that's lovely. And occasionally they slip me a fiver saying thank you. It's not a lot of money, but I like the fact that they acknowledge that because I've signed my work for hire agreement in the beginning like everybody else. I don't suddenly, I'm not going to suddenly sue them and say, I'm sorry, Guardians of the Galaxy would never have happened without me. I want 10 million pounds of your American dollars. Thank you. It's like, it doesn't work like that. But, but, but the fact that they're even recognising the creators, you know, inspired by the comics created by. 
That's that's a huge deal. And the good news is there's the end credits code away. You, after sitting through five minutes to find that piece of text, you do have at least a piece yeah, of text. Yeah, uh, although I have to say, with, with Guardians, I, don't, I just blow my own trumpet. With Guardians, James Gunn rang me up and said, do you want to come and visit the set? So I did. Met the cast, visited the set twice, actually. Got high-fived by Zoe Saldana in full Gamora costume. That alone will be the entire... And then they said, come to the premiere. So I, my, my wife... If there's, one, if there's one person in the whole Marvel setup who really does want to try and get the sales translating back, it is James Gunn, if I find that... Yes, I, find yeah, that I have to say, he's a huge champion. Exactly. But then I went, I went to the premiere, and we went to the red carpet, and we, well, it was a blue carpet, but anyway. Went, <laughs> to, went down it, watched the film, went, this is fantastic. It really felt that it would have been true to what I was doing. And then the credits rolled, and the one thing they hadn't told me, the bastards, was that my name was in the credits. And it's not just down the bottom in the really fine bit that you've got to wait ten minutes for. It's like, main cast, from a story by, and I went... Everyone's getting up out of their seats going, that was great. And I was going, holy shit, look! Dead, <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Fantastic. Um, I've got a couple more questions, but we'll uh, go back to our audience. If there's any questions uh, from our audience, take it away, sir. Michael. Daniel. Yes. <laughs> I was going to ask you when you invested in your first clone, but actually... <laughs> I agree with everything you say about the translation of movies not happening in comics. Mm. But do you think that a lot of it has to do with the, pretty much the only place on the high street that you can now find comics is in a comic shop? Yes, no one. Yeah, yeah I, I, was try, I, I tried to set something up uh, up in Yorkshire of uh, actually getting comic, pop-up comic book shops yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in the... the yes, that, and that is a much... Mike's, Mike's point is a very, very good one there. I mean, there might, there might be incrementally a, a certain percentage of a potential audience that is attracted to comics because they've seen a movie and they've thought, oh, comics, that's a cool thing, I want to go and look at that. Where do they buy them? Particularly in this country where they buy them. The, 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 the sort of slow disappearance of the of the the comic shop and this which is happening all over the place and the and, and part of that wow soapbox but part of that is to do with the monopoly of the distribution system and the direct sale market there are all sorts of ways those things have been improved i think people like dc are really seriously thinking about trying to work out how they can deliver comics to people in more effective ways because even the system is having a, an adverse effect um on the editorial process because we're now having to we always used to work at least three months in advance simply to get a book out in time for the deadlines, because that's how, essentially how long it takes to get a monthly book out there. But now we're being asked six or seven months in advance for covers and solicit texts, because it's got to go in the catalogue, otherwise no one's going to order it. And I'm going, well, you know, it used to go to, back in the day, but you know, Marvel Comics, you know, we used to go down, you look at the rack, and you go, well, look, look at that and that and that, and you buy them. Where is the newsstand sales? Where are the where are the, the proliferative? Where are the different places you can buy your comic? And that's much more important. The reason comics aren't selling as m much as they used to, even even in the what we thought of the bad days of the the 90s, the reason they're not selling as much is is how many places can you find where you can buy one? There might be hundreds, thousands of people who want to buy a comic, but unless they can come to a dedicated event like this, which by the way I think is a lovely thing to do, a comic convention is fantastic. Unless they are lucky enough to have a local comic shop, where are they going to get them? They might, they might say, I want to read Thor every month with a passion, but unless they can go into their local town, they're not, it's, it's much less likely they'll make the effort to say, order something and get it in. So, so again, people are going, oh, I, I don't understand you why... Think they... the Diamond model is going to get taken down know. somewhere? I think, it's gonna, I, I think it's got to alter slightly, and, I, and that's no reflection on Diamond. I think Diamond do, do, a, do, in many respects, a very, very brilliant job, and it was very, very clever of them to do what they did, but they are the only people, essentially the only people doing it. So if they screw it up, there isn't somewhere else you can go to, if, you, you know, if you're a comic And then the companies themselves, because they, they, the Marvel and DC, for instance, are so aware of how, how beholden they are to the catalogue ordering system of the direct market to get sales, they then do really rubbish things that fight that process. So Marvel's Secret Wars of a year or two ago. Secret Wars. It's a lovely event. If you read it, it's a beautiful comic. It's well written. It's very, very entertaining. It had a lot of nice spin-offs to it, and it's a lovely collection. But it took a year. It took a whole year. It then overran. So it was probably about 14 or 15 months by the time the whole event was shut. 
during that time, because it was such a cra- clever, creative, crazy thing to do, they cancelled every other Marvel book and replaced them with Civil War-related versions of those characters. I know that because I wrote many of them. Uh, now, I had a comic shop, my local comic shop in Maystone, The Grinning Demon, beautiful shop, lovely, very friendly place. I would buy my, I would buy comics there as a, as a reader, not as a professional checking out the opposition. As a reader, I would go and buy comics there. When Civil War came out, there are lots of people who want to read Civil War. But there are lots of people who like reading Spider-Man and Captain America. They turned up and they were told, that, well, there's no Spider-Man this month because it's now Civil War. They didn't want to read Civil War. And they didn't want a Civil War-related version of Spider-Man. So they cancelled all their orders. And they kept those orders cancelled until Civil War was finished. That was a three-month gap. Was it, was it three months? It was 14, in the end, it was 14 months. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant oh, that's yeah, the yeah. total now. Yeah. about the, the, the overrun? The, no, the, the, oh, yeah, the, yes. And, 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 and as a result, and this, is, this, is, this I'm sure is replicated across the UK and I'm sure America, The Grinning Demon isn't there anymore because it lost so much in sales because there were so many people who didn't want to buy into that. Now, if I was running, if I was running Marvel or DC, I would never commit to something that penalised my regular readers of the regular stuff, they just read one particular title every month. They're not interested in the events. They love the characters that they love. And I would also not penalise the independent retailers who are desperately trying to cling on by making enough, who then suddenly get their revenue. I mean, I think the Green Demons went by, down by two, uh, th- three quarters. And after 14 months, and, it, and most of those aren't going to come back and go, is it over yet? Okay, I'll resume my orders. That doesn't happen. You lose those people for good. Why would you damage an already fragile system by not working in partnership with the one monopoly of distribution to make sure that people got the product that they could then sell in the shops that would keep the shops going to then keep the comics going in the first place? It's like it's like it's not rocket science as far as I'm concerned. Soapbox, I love it. The comics in the morning yes. that won't be on sale in the comic shop until the afternoon. Yes, I, 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 so I, I everything I, seems to be. I think that's a weird. Yeah, comicsology. I, I, the digital sales of comics, I think, are, are absolutely lovely, um, and, and I think that's valid because a lot of people want to read things digitally. But the idea of releasing them before you can get your paper copy. I, I'm, I, am, I am, as you can tell, a huge champion of the monthly paper version. I love the fact that you can now, and back in the day you didn't used to get this, but you know, the trade collections and the, the, you know, the fact that you can, you can go back and you can read them. So many writers write for the trade, I think that's bullshit. Uh, it's, you write for the individual monthly comic, that is the, that is the, single, the single cell upon which everything else is built. And, and, and it's the one bit that seems to be being this killed This is why off. I love Kieran in the room, because <laughs> he doesn't. He writes for the arc. He writes for yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. And I write for the I write for the arc, and I write for the individual issue. I write, you know, each each issue the things that I write, including episodes in two thousand AD, have a beginning, middle, and an ending, even if they're part of a bigger story. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, that's old school. That's Jim Shooter old school storytelling, and that made me my old fashioned. But I want to be able. To, every comic is someone's first. Yeah. So make sure that it's accessible. And, and, and I do not object. When I, pull, when I go to my bookshelf and pull off my trade-back copy of, of, I don't know, the Dark Phoenix saga and start reading it again because it's a great comic, I do not resent the fact that every 22 pages there is a, there is a next issue and then there's, there's the same page again as the splash of the beginning for the cliffhanger. I don't go, oh, well, that's not a good reading experience because it's not... It's, not a, it's like, okay, what a great collection of comics. I've enjoyed that. Why this? And a blank page where the advert. Yeah, the blank page where the advert. Yeah, I don't care. It's yeah. Why? That's brilliant. We've got the uh, question. Sorry, he's got his mouth full, but we'll we'll let it slide. Oh, how embarrassing! I did have a point earlier on. (laughs) I think I did too. Moved on a bit. (laughs) Said there's nowhere else to buy comics. Uh, W. H. Smith's. Yes. Is round full of every month full of comics, Um, of reprints. Yes. Three or four issues. And, you know, that's where you can get them. Yeah, well, yeah. No, 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 and I agree with that, because I was going to say, W.H. Smith, when I was a kid, used to import some American comics, and I would buy, I I remember buying and and following the um, Frank Miller Daredevil Electra story, by (laughs) buying it in W.H. Smith as it came out. But that was rare, and if they didn't have it, they didn't have it. You couldn't reorder it. It's like, oh, we never missed that issue. I don't know what happened there. 
But W.H. Smith does, but like you said, it's, it's often reprints. It's like, like W.H. Smith is smart enough as a, as a bookshop to go, we will have a spinner rack of American comics we directly import. Wouldn't that be brilliant? And a lot of those comics are actually the sort of things that we as Marvel UK used to produce 30 years ago, which are licensed stuff. They might be actually originated. Slightly oversized. Yeah. They did did very much like the old. And it was always the format. At Marvel UK, when we started to originate books, we had to produce two versions of them. We had to to produce a weekly large format uh, version for the British newsstand because that's what they expected the comic to look like. And we used to have to produce a monthly... American format comic for the American news trade because that's what they expected. We used to double our, double our formatting. Mm. It's, it, but I, like I said, I, the idea of having a spinner rack in WH Smith I think is good. But yes, WH Smith, God bless them, long may they live. But tell me the names of the other newsagent chains where you can buy comics. Tell me the names of the okay, other news agent chains. Up, we've got a hand up here. Full stop, because there really aren't anybody that's got the coverage of, of Smith's, and Smith's is patchy. And I know, I know in my local Smiths in Maystone, there's uh, John Burdis, the, the, the George Dredd fan extraordinaire, goes in every week, takes the, the wodge of 2000 ADs that have been stuck at the bottom of the comics kids section, and he takes them out and he puts them in front of what, hi, what hi-fi, you, your car, um, um, home garden, uh, the lady... Um, Gorilla all, comics. Yeah, and, and he, takes, he takes the photographs. So he knows they'll tidy it up in five minutes, but he takes a photograph of that and then he puts it online. It's like, here's a, here's a rack of 2000 ADs. What a great publicity. We should, we, I kind of encourage comic fans to do that wherever possible. You know, spread out the magazines. You know, move the, move the 2000 ADs prominently and put, put them in front of that stuff. But also, news agents are great, but, but why, aren't, why, aren't, why aren't Marvel and DC, for instance... Um, approaching the Smiths Corporation or whatever it's called, Smiths Corporation <laughs> of the UK, and saying, "Would you, if we imported comics to you, would you not stop them on a spinner or a, on a, you know?" But they don't even do that on the newsstand. I know, I know, I know, and that's what I mean. Is why, why, because because it is apparently too difficult. Are you removing potential outlets for your work? Uh, and then complaining that people aren't buying enough comics? If you if you're reducing the number of places people can buy them. Direct market, I think, was a very good short-term fix. Yeah. Unfortunately, what it did is cut off the roots. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You only go to a comic shop if you know about comics. And we used to find out about comic shops from news agents. We used to know, but yeah, and, and that's it. I, I did a signing at school in Maystone, and the, the kids were really excited. Comics, they're so excited. The comic writer had come and was showing them physically comics. And one of the kids, bless him, he was about 12 years old, he went, Where do you get these? And I went, Will you buy, and this was a few couple of years ago, and I went, will you go to your, lo- well, your local comic shop is the best place. And he goes, where, where is the local comic shop? And I went, there's one in Maidstone. There was, because there was then. There's one in Maidstone. He went, is there? And it was complete news to him. Yeah, he loved comics. I did a, did a talk at the local library for a reading group, 11 to 14-year-olds, and they all loved comics. Mm. But they didn't know where to get them. No. No, it's anyway. Sorry, I've, I've ranted. No, uh, we've we've kind of like gone from your <laughs> your told you that your, would your, your career as a writer into a soapbox about the. I mean, I was even going to uh, talk about the recent um, panel um, in uh, America with uh, a creator who turned around and said that it was all cyclical, and in two years' time, it's going to be an exciting time. Do you agree? Well, all I would say, all I want to say to that is, comments like that are themselves cyclical. Every two or three years, somebody says it's only every two or three years. It was Mark Miller. I mean, come on, yeah, 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 what do you expect? So, okay, let's tie it back again with your career, and in terms of what's actually happening next as well for yourself. What's, um, I mean, we've obviously got the rebirth stuff, and we've got some uh, some more DC work on the way. You're still working for uh, doing work for 2018. What is next? Uh, I, I am, in a typically modest amount of work that I'm doing at the moment, which is representative of what I do most of the time, I've been, I've been on the DC exclusive for two years, and I've chosen not to renew it, but it doesn't mean I'm stopping working with DC. So I'm writing Aquaman uh, into the most enormous storylines that are coming up now, the we, things we've been working on for the last year are now really coming up to a climax. So, so good stuff on Aquaman, and a Mirror Limited series that runs alongside the first time in 65 years she's had her own book. As, as, in my opinion, the most underrated and, and least represented strong DC female character. Um, uh, I write Silencer for, for DC, which is a, the new thing, part of the New Age of Heroes, which John Romita Jr. and I created, which is a fun thing to do. And I've been writing since Rebirth, or since just before Rebirth, the Titans book, not Teen Titans, but Titans, which is Nightwing, Donna Troy, and all that. 
And I was told a couple months ago that that was, that was going to stop on 22 because there's a big event coming up called No Justice and the Titans would be cancelled. And I went, well, I had a decent run of about 30 issues, I'm not surprised. And then they, and, and I'm telling you this now because I discovered they'd announced it yesterday and I, it was on my newsfeed this morning. Uh, I resume on Titans on 23, but with a new artist and a completely new lineup. The Titans are reinventing. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. So, so Titans, and that is, that is incredibly exciting as we're doing, doing new things. So you only found that out yesterday? No, I knew, I knew it was happening. <laughs> I could, just couldn't talk about it until yesterday. I know they, they published the, the title. So it's, it's Nightwing, Donna Troy. Because um, I seem to be seeing that a lot on the comics, Twitter and comics social media. I've just found out I'm doing this. Yes, oh, that, that, does, that does happen from time to time. As you say, 2018, which I love writing for uh, because of the sheer creativity of creating your own stuff, but writing Sinister Dexter being drawn by Steve Yowell at the moment, uh, he's doing a brilliant job. Uh, writing uh, Grey Area, Mark Harrison, which is proving to be an incredibly successful strip. And with my particular partner in crime, Ian Culbart, with whom I did Need Edwardians and, and various other projects, uh, we've got Brink there, who's about to return for its third series, which has been hugely acclaimed as a series of 2018. To my surprise, because it's so non 2018, it's very, very dialogue, non action, but. But, but what's it? You're keeping him off Brass Sun, which I'm not particularly well, happy about. Very well, yeah, he does, he does tend to, he, he, he works between the two of them. Now, Ian and I also, for Boom, did a series called Wild's End, which was critically acclaimed. We've got two volumes of that have come out. Uh, it's sort of, uh, it's with The Wind of the Willows meets The War of the Worlds, where the 1930s England, but the characters are all animals, but I write them as if they were genuine characters. Okay. And it's quite a shocking story. Uh, that is. There seems to be a number of those stories uh, kicking Yeah, around, I, right? I wasn't aware of how many there were until we'd done one. We were going, oh, it's a bit like that. And I'm going, is it? Oh, God. Um, this July, again, announced yesterday, this July, the third volume of that trilogy is appeared. And we, instead of publishing it in serial form first, we're doing it as a graphic novel. And we've finished on that, and it's just been shown by Boom. And then in the magazine, of course, Phil Winslade and I on Lawless, which is one of my favourite ever things to do because Phil Winslade is amazing. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm writing novels for Warhammer or games. What else do you want? I don't know. I think that if, if you've got time to breathe, for God's sake, no. I think it does. Uh, well, that might make reference to the clones, and for years now, our running joke has been that actually uh, the reason I work, work as much as I do is that I've, I've cloned myself. Until Facebook told me to stop, my other Facebook page was called Dan Abnett Primary Clone. Just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they told me I couldn't call it that. Fair enough. And on that, I think it's a fantastic note to finish on. Um, oh, oh I, I'm, I'm getting told that we can. Oh, string... look, there's a man with a hand up. Yeah. Yes, let's well, go for it. Can you tell us about your new? Because I'm really, really looking forward to the, the new direction on uh, Titans. I thought I'd heard that you were writing it anyway, so maybe I just dread that. <laughs> come straight. Can you tell us anything at this point about your new Titan run? I can, indeed. Uh, the, 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 the essence of the Rebirth Titans that I've been writing up to now was really yeah. dragging, dragging the classic 60s. Uh, Nick Cardi version of the Titans, the original version, not the Perez Wolfman new Teen Titans that everybody knows and loves, but the early one with that wackiness back into a into, and through through a series that's called Titans Hunt. I sort of managed to slip the the old continuity back into New Fifty Two continuity um, in in a subtle way, suggesting they actually it actually had all happened, but they'd forgotten about it for re story related reasons. And it was the classic characters. It was essentially you know the, what was the DC reaction when you did that? Well, it was weird because they asked me to do. Oh, this. fantastic! They asked me if I would sneak the continuity in there and explain why Donna Troy. So basically, Wonder Girl and Speedy and Kid Flash and Aqualad and and, and Robin had been a team and nobody knew about it. So I. I concocted this storyline and it was meant to run for 12 issues and then they said uh, actually can you and the big climactic thing was going to be the reveal of the return of Wally West as the Flash and they went actually can you turn into eight issues but we'll then let you write the new Titans book that comes out of it and I discovered that I had been like a canary in a coal mine I was the guinea pig for Rebirth they wanted to see how my Titans version of blending old and new continuity worked to see whether they would actually go ahead with Rebirth. And when it did, they went, right, we're doing Rebirth now. Stop what you're doing. Here's Titans. And everybody else got, you know, and I got, I was, similarly, I was, I'd just taken over Aquaman when they did it to Aquaman as well. And, but luckily, I could continue the continuity through. So it was all about the Silver Age versions of, um, uh, of the Titans. Great fun. But the, there was an inherent problem, which is the Titans are all friends. Every, thematically, everything was about them being friends. And so I actually turned that, but in the latest issues that are coming out now, it's a big storyline about how they've sort of fallen apart because they trust each other too much and there's, there's all sorts of problems going on. They've all got individual issues. And it, and it worked out. It, and, and so issues sort of 21, 22 and the annual, which is the climax of the story, 
show, we, we've actually seen the Justice League come in and say, stop being the Titans, you're benched because you're not, you're not, you, you know, you, you can't do this properly. You, you're not acting professionally, basically. So big storylines there, which I thought would be my sign-off on the characters. Now I get the opportunity with, with, with the new Titans, which starts with a special and then issue 23. We've got Brandon Peterson drawing it. Beautiful stuff. But it's Nightwing feeling like he's now got to prove himself to Batman again, that he is capable of leading a team, as Batman always thought he was, because he thought he would one day lead the Justice League, uh, being uh, essentially asked to, to head up a special task force that is called the Titans, but is part of the Justice League body of, of, of the organisation, with a special remit, which I can't tell you because it's to do with the things that are happening in No Justice, but this huge thing happens in No Justice, and they become sort of Earth's defenders, rather than having a specific remit. And he gets to handpick his team. So we've got, he picks Donna Troy from the old team, because she, because it's Donna Troy. But he doesn't go for any of his other friends, because he doesn't want it to be a bunch of friends again. And we get um, Steel, Natasha Irons as Steel. And we get Beast Boy and Raven from the Teen Titans, and of course, you know, continuity from his point of view. And we get Miss Martian. The, the, fema, the young female who is fabulous, the most fabulous character, and, they, and, and they, they are the team put together. So they're put together because then their complementary skill sets are perfect for this mission. That's why he's chosen them, Nightwing's chosen them. He's the sort of Captain America of this team. They're all massively superpowered, but he's the, he's the non-superpowered genius behind it all. But, uh, but they're, not necessarily friend, they're not necessarily good friends. So it's more about the way they professionally evolve in the face of something so completely unknown and strange that, that usually you get st stories about teams that the team is a novice, they don't know what they're up against, but they learn on the job. In this, they are not novices, but they've still got to learn on the job because the, 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 the problem is so freaky. And it's, it's extremely exciting. It's, it's full of some great character moments. Miss um, Martian in particular, she was, she was literally a last-minute uh, addition to my... Uh, roster. I picked the ones I wanted, and they said, "I said we want, we want, we want what, what are they, you know." And they went, "What about Miss Martian?" I went, "Oh gosh, she hasn't been used in the new DC universe. It's like the early '90s since we, she last appeared." Um, so my suggestion was that I put her in, and she is the um, appointed by the Justice League to be the sort of babysitter of the team. So she's like the head girl, looking at the prefect, looking after the others, which Nightwing resents horribly. And there's a, immediately this wonderful dynamic between the two of them. It's like who, who gets to actually give the orders and everything like that. So I was just going to say, it sounds like such an interesting dynamic between the, the characters, and like you say, the bringing in of the, the old and the new and the, the classic and the, the, the rebirth. Yeah. How far ahead have you got? Um, um, kind of penciled out so far. I, uh, actually, I've got over a year's worth. Oh, wow. no, I've, I've got nearly, I've got nearly two years worth of ideas, and we're basically building a schedule now to work out which are the best ones and what is the best order. And some of those will naturally go, and there will naturally come a point where No Justice is is such a last year's news that we will start to have to refresh. When does No Justice happen? Because there's, there's a number of Marvel events happening. It's, it's next. I think it starts next month, and it's it's big. And like I said, I can't tell you about it, but I think it's really really exciting. And it does some, some. It's Scott Snyder doing, doing great things. And he, he and I have talked long, long about how to how to relate these things together. The weird thing about the new new Titans, though, and I just mentioned this because it's not deliberate. But I sometimes get either criticised or acclaimed, depending on who you are and what your political outlook is, on being a particularly diverse writer. That is to say, I will, I will you know, I, I put female characters into Warhammer novels. And you know, or gay. How dare you? What was I thinking? Um, and you know, female characters with this, that, the other, or gay characters with this, that, the other. Uh, Marvel, DC, Warhammer, whatever. Uh, you know, Brink. The main characters in Brink are, are female. This, this kind of stuff. Um, Lawless, female, female judge. You know, and, and and I go, and they say these things to me, and I go, well, thank you very much. That's very nice. And then I go, I wasn't deliberate at all. They were just characters. It just happened to be those characters. So the new Titans lineup is a six-strong team. It's Beast Boy and Nightwing, and four female characters. Name me a mainstream superhero comic that's got that's got twice as many women in the men. And and that was completely an accident. I chose the six characters I liked and was most interested in, and I thought would make for the best story. And then the editor went, "That's a really interesting lineup. It's so clever of you to pick a girl-led." Girl heavy team, and I went, Oh, I that wasn't, that was completely inadvertent. I didn't do that deliberately. So, there you go. Yeah, DNC are going to love you. Yeah. Uh, so, that's going to be fun. Yep. You're saying that you're two, almost two years ahead with your reporting. Just in terms of ideas and outlines. And okay. But then you're coming out of no justice. 
which is a big event. So yes. In the next two years, and using just purely hypothetically, they drop a new justice. Oh, and that's exactly why I meant that. Yeah. Th those ideas. I had, usually when you're given a book to do, either a new book or, or as in my case, saying you can carry on with Titans, what are you going to do next? You brainstorm and come up with, with six or eight months worth of stories in the head. New Titans was such an exciting prospect, it just triggered my imagination. I went, look, these are really good stories, and you can be this, this, and this, and I realised I had about two years worth of stories. Now, I know that within nine or 12 months from No Justice, there will be at least one major event that I have to reflect, and also that No Justice will be, like I said, something old-fashioned, and I actually will probably need to change the remit of the, new, of the Titans simply to reflect that they are not tied to, to an old-fashioned thing. But the point is, they're valid stories, and I will fit them and I will use them. With the, the thinking on your feet that happens, just in the last week alone with Titans, this has all happened in the last three or four weeks, and I, and I, have been, I think I've been through five, cheerfully been through five revisions of the, of the outline of issues, not because they were bad, not because the editors didn't like it, but everything was happening so fast, they'd bring me up and go, right, we haven't got that character, we've got this character instead. What happens if we move that, character, that story to number three, move this one back to four, change that, can you slot something in there? And it was like, it was, it was spontaneous. And some of the best creativity comes out of that. Some of the best ideas came, like Miss Martian. It was like last minute, what about Miss Martian? Brilliant, changes everything, fantastic. So in other words, to answer your question, he has got two years, but he hasn't had his clones talk to each other yet no. to tie them all no, together. No, no, no. So yet. that's how it's just, <laughs> just yeah, his clones haven't actually sat down and had a group chat just yet. yet. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't. I don't know what you mean, Mike. I don't know what you mean, Mike. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he is going to be here for the rest of the weekend. He's going to be down at his table. I'm certain there's plenty more than you can ask him. Please, put your hands together for Dan Abner, everybody. Yeah. Yeah.